justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta welcome to justify in episode 11 today we have a topic that's slightly off the beaten track well not for lawyers for whom this is really the abc of legal education our episode is titled the common law and other things while the common law is central to who we are as a legal system in india it's really not studied or thought about that much but maybe it has some explanations for what's going on in the supreme court at this point of time joining me in my tete tete will be dr shiv prasad swaminathan professor of law at jindal global law school but that's in a bit and before that here's our round up of cases from the recent past It's been a busy month in the Supreme Court and I think we'll need a number of roundups to be able to cover this month. So let's start at the very beginning in the first week of February. The week was a very busy week in the Supreme Court and you may remember that the Sabri Mala case took another interesting twist. This time the Supreme Court framed seven issues which are pure questions of law that it would go into. These issues were meant to determine the scope and ambit of the freedom of religion under Article 25 of the Constitution and its interplay with the freedom that religious denominations have under Article 26 of the Constitution. You'd remember that in the Shabri Mala case the key issue was of a menstruating woman's right to pray in Shabri Mala vis-a-vis the right of the Ayappans as a religious denomination to determine whether menstruating women should be allowed or not. This is a classical legal issue. But what the court has done here is that in exercise of its review jurisdiction it has framed seven questions of law these questions are not meant to determine only the shabri mala case but also cases in the future such as cases relating to female genital mutilation cases relating to entry of women into mosques and entry of non parsees into fire temples this has wide ramifications and so there were several arguments made by counsel that the court should not be entertaining this kind of inquiry in a review it should simply look at the review and dispose it off on whether the judgment was right or wrong i have written earlier that there is much that is wrong about the judgment in fact our second episode with salman khurshid talks about this that it shouldn't be reviewed There is a difference between a judgment that is wrong and a judgment that requires review. The Supreme Court has taken this matter to a completely different trajectory and formulated seven pure questions of law. This is unlike a court of law. I have rarely if ever seen something like this. So we can safely say that perhaps it's the interests of justice rather than the interests of legal propriety. that is determining this course of action let's see what happens 
Another case that made the headlines, perhaps for the wrong reasons and misattributed, if I may add, was the case of Mukesh Kumar versus State of Uttarakhand. You would have read in the newspapers that the Supreme Court has held that there is no fundamental right to a reservation in promotion in a government job. This created much political angst with political parties saying that the Modi government was against SCST welfare. The legal position, however, is far more simple. Article 16.4 and Article 16.4a of the Constitution allow for reservation both in appointment as well as in promotion for persons from the SCST communities in government jobs. The critical thing to note is that the articles allow for such reservation. They don't mandate such reservation. So if any particular state thinks that the SCST communities are inadequately represented in government service, then they can reserve seats for them. They cannot, however, be mandated to do so by the court. This is a very simple legal proposition. And the court has simply reiterated that. Politicians understandably are upset by the fact that this could mean an end to the quota politics that has become common in India today. There is perhaps a reason to be afraid given the fact that with the Modi government moving to quotas on the basis of economic backwardness, there might be a legitimate fear that the quota system might remain central to India's jobs jurisprudence. but the basis for those quotas may move away from caste. This, however, is a political issue and not a constitutional one. The Supreme Court was absolutely right in this case and it's best that parties kept the court out of any politics on this issue. The Supreme Court decided another interesting question of law this time in relation to anticipatory bail under Section 438 of the CRPC. In the case of Sushila Agarwal versus National Capital Territory of Delhi, the question before the court was the extent of discretion that can be exercised by courts when granting anticipatory bail. Now, all of you know that anticipatory bail is when a person apprehends arrest and goes to court asking for bail so that they are not put in prison. In this case, the court held resolving a conflict that had gone back a long way that no time limit should be ordinarily framed in an order of anticipatory bail. The power to grant anticipatory bail is cast in wide terms. In an appropriate case, looking into the facts and circumstances, the concerned court retains the discretion to limit the time of operation of an anticipatory bail order, but it's not necessary that it does so. These are one of these questions of law that you wonder why it came up to the Supreme Court. Because all that the Supreme Court has done is reiterated a commonsensical proposition that anticipatory bail is a discretionary matter for the courts. And courts must determine it on the basis of the facts and circumstances before it. Coming now to the High Court case. This is an interesting case 
the Public Safety Act in Jammu and Kashmir. Not the two cases that we've heard of most recently where charges under the Public Safety Act have been slapped against Omar Abdullah and Mehbooba Mufti on what seems to be fairly outlandish grounds. I don't know whether it'll stand up in a court of law. The little bit I've read of it, it doesn't seem like it should. It perhaps very strongly shouldn't. In Mia Abdul Qayyum versus the state of JNK, Mia Abdul Qayyum was the president of the JNK High Court Bar Association in Srinagar. He had been arrested and lodged in prison from the night of 4th of August. And later it was found that he had been transferred to the central jail in Agra. On August 7, 2019, the district magistrate Srinagar passed an order under the JNK Public Safety Act placing him under preventive detention. This matter was raised before the court. Now the judgment of the court in pure legal terms is correct. The court says that it cannot go into the question whether on the merits the detaining authority was justified to make the order of detention or to continue it as if sitting in appeal. That's what the constitution and the law requires that if the court determines that the detaining authority has relevant material and has decided to detain per persons on the basis of that relevant material, then courts cannot go in and scrutinize the adequacy of that material. So in a basic sense, the court is right. But we don't live in simple times. This is a time when a person, in this case the president of the JNK Bar Association, who has been kept in prison for a period now that has extended over six months. He allegedly has made several secessionist statements and has a history of promoting such ideology. But he was also the president of the Bar Association for the longest period of time. Now, unless we are ready to admit that a president of the Bar Association who was openly functioning as such before the 5th of August 2019 was essentially a person who was spewing venom against India when he was holding such a role, despite being an officer of the JNK High Court, I don't see as to how he could have turned secessionist in the course of the last seven months. We do live in difficult times, and in difficult times, perhaps it's necessary for the courts to look into its jurisprudence to see within its limitations what it is that it can do. Perhaps the court was right in this case, perhaps it was wrong. I am not privy to all the facts and circumstances. But the real test will be in the cases relating to Omar Abdullah and Mehbooba Mufti, the former is already in the Supreme Court, where a public safety act being used against a prominent local politician has been raised. This means that a public safety act might be used against any local politician in Jammu and Kashmir. I'm not sure the public safety act was meant for this purpose ever. So the courts are in for a difficult time. Let's hope that they remain true to their task as the constitution demands of doing justice without fear or favor. Today's deep dive is actually a bit of a shallow dive because it's on a topic that I don't know very much about. It's the common law. Now, the common law is something that we as Indian lawyers and law students know of and use quite often. We say that we are a common law country, but we don't study the common law in college. So what exactly is the common law? 
Because I don't have much to say of my own before our tete-a-tete, I thought that I would reproduce some interesting quotations from around the world on what judges and lawyers understand the common law to be. That I think will set us up nicely for our tete-a-tete with Shiv Swaminathan. So the most famous exposition of the common law was a book written by the famous jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes. And this is a quote that many of you would have heard. The life of law has not been logic, it has been experience. The felt necessities of the times, the prevalent moral and political theories, intuitions of public policy, avowed or unconscious, even the prejudices which judges share with their fellow men have had a good deal more to do than the syllogism in determining the rules by which men should be governed. Holmes is essentially saying that the law is what the judges say it is, but this is not an unfettered discretion of judges but conditioned by their experience. Justice Cardozo puts it even more beautifully where he says, the judge, and that is the common law judge, even when he is free, is still not wholly free. He is not to innovate at pleasure. He is not a knight-errant roaming at will in pursuit of his own ideal of beauty or of goodness. He is to draw his inspiration from consecrated principles. He is not to yield to spasmodic sentiment, to vague and unregulated benevolence. He is to exercise a discretion informed by tradition, methodized by analogy, disciplined by system, and subordinated to the primordial necessity of order in social life. All of this seems to make the common law a fairly elitist enterprise, where some judges who have a clear view on what order in social life means use their intuition to come to the right conclusions. Is this elitist enterprise really the common law or is it something deeper than that? That's going to be our tete-a-tete for this week. My guest today on tete-a-tete is the legal philosopher Shiv Prasad Swaminathan. Shiv has done recent work on common law, including a seminal paper published last year in the Modern Law Review and another forthcoming one in the Oxford Journal of Legal Studies. That's quite a bit to write about the common law, so I hope you can share some pearls of wisdom with us today. Thanks very much for coming, Shiv. Thank you very much, Shabba. Thanks for having me here. So tell us a little bit about the central idea of your work, which is the nature of the common law, something that we hear about quite a bit, but perhaps don't stop and inquire into. Right. So uh, terms like lex non scripta and uh, custom are often used to speak of the common law. And I think that is quite all right. But all this can be quite misleading if it calls to mind the image of the common law as a body of law with rules with the only twist that those rules are not written. Uh, I think that the key to understanding the common law is to think of it not as a body of rules at all, but instead as a practice of reasoning that is shared by the legal community, by which I mean the bar and the bench. In other words, the common law is the collective intuitions about responses to problems that is held by the legal community. And so on this picture, knowing the common law becomes a bit more like an aesthetic sense rather than a scientific So knowledge. let me stop you there. What do you mean by law having an 
aesthetic sense uh, because when I think about the law, although law can be elegant and inelegant, I don't necessarily think of it as aesthetics. Well, right. How do you think uh, law in this aesthetic sense is supposed to work? Right. So let me just tell you a bit about uh, how this works. So uh, imagine a bunch of uh, independent decision makers who played by ear and mutually adjust their decisions to their expectations of what will pass muster with the rest of the community. So that's uh, like playing to the gallery. No, no. Uh, it is learning to anticipate what will pass muster. And there is also a second element here. And they do all this without the use of any common blueprint or code. Now, that in essence is the common law system for you. Now, there are two ideas at play here. One is the anticipation of what is likely to pass muster with the legal community and by this I mean the bar and the bench and the second is the is the persuasion of the members of this community uh, by drawing upon a, a shared fund of past responses which is where past cases or precedents come in and so this aesthetic sense is the first of these two so it's a form of, of tacit knowledge so you're saying that something which appeals to the legal community, is that what you mean by an aesthetic sense? No, uh, by an aesthetic sense, I mean where they learn to anticipate what is likely to be acceptable to the rest of the community. Now that seems like a pretty radical notion of what the common law is, because my intuition as a lawyer is perhaps more on the lines of the second part that the common law is a common set of rules that will be determined on the basis of case law and precedent and reasoning that's based on those you're now essentially saying and i'm perhaps simplifying this a bit crassly that this is judges playing to the gallery and the gallery being the bar and the bench. I think there are two questions here. One about if this is a radical view or not and the second about playing to the galleries. This is not at all a radical view of the common law and uh, in fact I claim that this is an image of the uh, common law that, that goes back at least four centuries. So uh, this goes back to Cook and uh, Hale, maybe even beyond. Uh, so when James I uh, told Sir Edward Cook that he being endowed with as much reason as a common law judge could also decide uh, cases just as well as a common law judge did, Cook replied to him by saying that uh, that the king couldn't do that because the reasoning of the common lawyer was not in every man's private reason, as he called it, but it was rather artificial reasoning, which is the reasoning of the artifacts or the craftsmen. Uh, in other words, this is a skill or craft. Uh, and later, you can see the same point being made by Hale against uh, Hobbes. The key to understand this is craft, and, and this might also explain why the common law was never taught at universities but rather taken to be a craft uh, that had to be picked up uh, by reading in chambers or uh, the inns of court. So that's a really interesting point that uh, I actually never thought as to why the common law was not taught at university. Uh, and if I were to take that point further that this is something that is picked up during practice through intuition 
experience then don't you think that is something that is at its core unpredictable which certainly goes against my instinct of what the rule of law is supposed to be that is predictable and certain that's a pretty good question because there is a sense in which these responses are actually subjective and that's true but because they are subjective it doesn't mean that they automatically become unpredictable uh, because even though this is is subjective this is a, a kind of collective intuition of the legal community so it leads to a form of intersubjectivity uh, if i may explain this so uh, i think it's possible to have a practice of reasoning that approximates some kind of an order that is also quite predictable uh, without having any uh, rules or codes and i think that the common law is an excellent example of that and the key element that makes this happen is the idea of this collective skill so if you think about uh, an english judge for instance right in england judges are drawn from a pool of barristers who have spent long years at the bar now what this does is that this tends to ensure that by the time they are elevated to the bench they they tend to have internalized the gaze of their legal peers and they acquire a keen sense of what is likely to pass muster with the legal community uh, and this actually produces a certain amount of cohesion of thought in fact one might complain that this actually uh, produces a far too predictable judiciary rather than an unpredictable one so while the justification you might say is cohesion and predictability it reminds me of a somerset mom quote where it was said that and i quote i have wished that besides the bunch of flowers at the old bailey his lordship had a package of toilet paper which would remind him that he was a man like any other what you seem to be saying is that judges are a community of oracles with great wisdom that is understood by a few and should be accepted by the rest if there is no element of correctness objectivity or truth then don't you think that then this becomes fundamentally a legal enterprise that is both elitist and you may choose not to comment on that but also one that is not really directed at the truth i think that yes i agree that judges are human they are all too human and in fact this is a very early picture of judging uh, in fact i uh, don't think that there is anything mystical about it uh, i mean yes you are quite right to say that this picture of law has no truth with capital t but then it does not mean that it doesn't have a sense of normativity now this is a this is something for for lay <laughs> no, no. people like us so yeah. if you could explain to yes. more common folk as to what normativity yeah. yes. might be yeah okay so by normativity i mean that the answer to the question what i ought to do here in this case uh, it's as simple as that and i think that there is a clear normless normativity that uh, that comes from this shared craft idea and it uh, really allows us to proceed without any fixed rules i must say this that it is not as radical as it may sound oliver wendell holmes when he spoke about experience i think this was the essence when lumelin uh, spoke about the horse sense of 
the corporate lawyer, I think uh, that's what he was actually hinting at. And why? I mean, let's just go back to law school, right? So uh, let's go back to negligence or reasonableness in tort law. Now, no one can actually in fact, define these terms and we still cannot define these terms. But show a student 10 cases and they can tell if the 11th case is, you know, in fact, negligence or not. So we know uh, it when we see it. Well, we know it when we see it is uh, is is true of all forms of uh, tacit knowledge. Uh, you know, this is exactly what philosophers call as tacit knowledge. In fact, uh, even if you go back to Aristotle, right, he thought that even ethical knowledge is only of this kind. I mean, uh, it's a skill to be actually acquired by wisdom, which he called as phronesis. And so the phronobos is actually someone who acts ethically in case after case and acquires an ethical skill. So even if we go back to ancient philosophy, uh, we do have this clear difference between techne, which is an art, and uh, episteme, which is, which is knowledge. And all I'm saying is that we cannot ignore this form of, of knowing, which has been emphasized by so many philosophers. And if we come down to more recent times, so for example, David Hume uh, has something of this kind, Wittgenstein, in fact, Thomas Kuhn, says that scientific research is also based on a similar form of tacit knowledge. Now, science is actually supposed to be a, uh, a bastion of objectivity and rules, and even there, uh, tacit knowledge is what you'll actually find at the, at the base of that practice as well. So I guess that even in any field that is broadly ethics, there would be a lot of tacit knowledge that's involved because it's not really rule-based as opposed to understanding uh, tacitly, for lack of a better word, yeah. uh, what one is expected to do and not to do. And this leads me to a question that I have grappled with from the time I was a law student. Is India really a common law system? Right. Uh, actually, although that's a great question and, uh, and it's a clearly a very important one. And I'm afraid I don't have a very neat answer to it. Uh, so give us I, the dirty word. <laughs> well, uh, I just have some pointers uh, uh, in the direction of a possible answer. Uh, so, so uh, let me start by saying that all of my discussion so far is, is about the unalloyed uh, English common law system. Uh, and we should not expect to find the same common law system in every place that it has been exported to and calls itself a, uh, as a common law system. And I suppose the key here is to ask ourselves, what is the essence of a common law system? And uh, that essence, I think, is a closely knit community of lawyers and judges, uh, which leads to this uh, bunch of common intuitions about what is likely to pass muster with the with the legal community, and from and from that follows predictability and stability of the uh, common law. Now there are two factors at uh, play here. The first is that we uh, learn from the work on uh, the tragedy of the commons that the degree of uh, cohesion in uh, a certain community is inversely related to the size of the group. Uh, which means that the larger the group, the lesser the common uh, intuitions of that group are likely to be. And the second is that uh, here one cannot expect or give 
a uniform answer i think that will uh, that will apply across the board for the question is there common law in india so i think that there will be a difference between the supreme court high court and lower courts now my sense here it's based on a hypothesis rather than than any great research at this point my sense is that the practice of the board of the board traditional high courts might be closest to the english common law system uh, in the sense that they have a greater sense of community and this should i think ideally also lead to a more cohesive bar and bench community and a more predictable and stable law and if the supreme court does not have this sense of community it is to that extent uh, less like a common law system and i think that that also you know in fact manifests itself in the lack of predictability in the supreme court so i think couple of points have come to mind because the first is i was thinking that there could be an interesting contradiction that despite the fact that we have a system of common law in terms of a common set of intuitions that the bar and bench share we also have a a very vibrant tradition of comparative law uh, i thought that might be a contradiction given the fact that comparison is something that may not necessarily be rooted in any particular system of shared intuitions but perhaps then i realized that given that the nature of the community is so small that it may not be actually uh, a contradiction uh, as much as perhaps an affirmation of the fact that perhaps it is a small community it is a community that derives a lot of its legal traditions from england and from the us which is why you still find that the case law that gets quoted in the indian higher judiciary is from the england and the us something that's acceptable within this community and not case law from pakistan or sri lanka or malaysia countries which may be closer to us but whose legal traditions are perhaps not accepted in the community but uh, that aside in terms of the supreme court don't you think the fact that there is a permanent establishment in the supreme court namely the supreme court bar that's the grand senior advocates particularly who i have in mind don't you think that makes it a bit something like a community actually that's a that's a very interesting question and it is definitely something that i need to look into but i think that it's quite interesting that you don't speak of the supreme court bar but you speak of a subgroup of the supreme court bar who you call as the grand advocates i think it would be quite interesting to see whether the high courts in fact have that too and my sense is that we might find a more gentle gradation in the bar in the high courts or at least the more traditional ones than the supreme court and 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 if you agree that this is the case uh what might explain this uh could be the difference in the sense of bar and bench community between the two courts and if that is the case you will also see that manifest itself uh as a difference in the in the uh in the predictability and the stability of the law in these two courts see because in the supreme court the judges come from all over the country they have a very short tenure uh and these are factors which are very very different from the uh, for the bar i think my 
tacit knowledge of the Supreme Court yeah. perhaps is telling me that what you are saying is right. <laughs> that, uh, that in the high court there seems to be a stronger sense of community which is why lawyers typically say that it's much more predictable in the high court than the Supreme Court where which is naturally more cosmopolitan with a with uh, changing population of judges at least if not if not the bar but let's come to the second aspect of what you said is integral to a common law system and that's the fact that it is unwritten and as i was saying that india now has the constitution it has a number of statutes uh, and and traditional areas of common law such as contract are are, are statutory areas at this point in time now how does this understanding or common understanding and shared intuitions play out with side by side with statutes which are written text right so yeah so i think that's a great question and i think that i'm going to partly dodge it and partly answer it i think that i'll partly dodge the uh, the question about the interaction between the common law and the constitution uh, i think that's a really difficult one to answer and one that i'm still thinking about but let me speak about statute law and i think that here we need to differentiate between two kinds of code. One is areas where the common law previously occupied the field, as in the case of contract, and other where the common law never occupied the field, like in the case of the bankruptcy court, for instance. Uh, now, my work on Indian contract law has uh, shown that areas where the common law occupies the field, the courts actually tend to keep following their common law intuitions, even in the teeth of answers that are uh, uh, answers to the contrary that are dictated by a court. That's really interesting. Could you give us an example? Privity of contract, for example, there is no, uh, uh, as I have argued in my work, there is no basis for a privity rule in in the Indian Contract Act, and there are clear indications that the drafters did want to have that rule, and yet we find that the courts just kept applying this intuition that you cannot have a third party enforce the contract. This, this, the same is true also for liquidated damages, uh, a term which isn't even there in the Act. Uh, Section 74 has been read to incorporate that term, which clearly isn't there. In fact, the drafters said that we don't want to have that term. Uh, and uh, the same is true also of consideration uh, that, that what we have in Section 2D of the Act is not the English law of consideration, but a very broad definition of consideration that was actually calculated to do away with it entirely. But in each of these areas, we find that there has been a huge distortion. And one good explanation for that could be this, that, uh, that they keep actually following their intuitions in all of these areas. And, uh, and, uh, and a code simply cannot survive uh, that. So let me finish with a normative question to you. What you call judicial intuition, I might call judicial whimsy because there is a statute. The court is supposed to apply the statute, but instead of applying the statute, it is applying something that it thinks will be accepted by the community. Well, the community there that it's looking at is the bar and the bench, but the community which has drafted the statute is we the people of India and that's the only community that matters. So when judges are using their intuitions, essentially, in my view, they are being arbitrary. So do you think normatively that this in India 
is a justified endeavor so uh, so if i may just uh, take that question to a slightly more better level i think that there uh, you know i think it raises several questions about political philosophy and i think that there are several uh, assumptions there but the same question could also be asked at the level of constitutional uh, about the power to amend the constitution for instance right uh, should the people of india have the untrammeled power to uh, amend the constitution and the common laws answer has always been that can't be done because uh, there is uh, because there are some things that you can't change and i think that there is uh, and again uh, so uh, so that that sense of the common law constitutionalism that one uh, gets from the bottoms case uh, and from uh, from uh, 17th century uh, english political thought uh, also i think uh uh addresses the same issue okay we have to close this conversation here we have uh, many more questions and many more thought provoking issues to think about that you've raised shiv perhaps i'm i'm going to get a marxist scholar next to discuss <laughs> about what they think is uh, uh, of your views in terms of what the common law is but uh, It was a pleasure having you Shiv it was a really thought provoking discussion and I really enjoyed it thanks very much for joining thank you very much Arun it's a pleasure time for clatter our legal quiz that's a bit tougher than clat last week's quiz was indeed quite tough because everyone was thrown by the question that was a googly the case where at the behest of a certain mr x five individuals entered into an agreement where one tried to back out and a court of law which sentenced four out of the five individuals to death by hanging was not bachan singh as many of you said but a fictional case of the spilantian explorers now you'll have to try a little bit harder my colleague pranay clearly got you this time time for this week's quiz identify the link between a religious saint who is an expert swimmer and was reportedly a black belt in karate and a famous supreme court case which is back in the news in this last month this is a bit of an abstraction but i'm sure many of you will be able to figure this out in no time write in with your right answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in Correct answers go into a pot where a winner gets an Amazon gift voucher. Thanks very much for tuning into this episode. Adjourned. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at vidhi underscore India for regular updates. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or any other podcast channel that you know to tune in to our next episode. Email us at justify@vithilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode. We look forward to hearing from you.